Welcome to Overdue, Weeding Out Oppression in Libraries, a podcast produced by the Oregon Library Association's Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Anti-Racism Committee. I'm Laurie Dominguez. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the Resources Coordinator at the Albany Public Library. I'm joined by my co-host today, Kristen Curé. Hi, I am Kristen Curé. My pronouns are she, her, and I work at the Springfield Public Library as the Spanish Language Services and Latino Liaison Librarian. We are pleased to have with us today Dr. Sandy Littletree, who is an assistant professor at the Information School of the University of Washington focused on Native North American Indigenous knowledge at the Information School at the University of Washington. Her research focuses on the emerging field of Indigenous information science, particularly Indigenous librarianship and the intersections of tribal sovereignty, technology, knowledge, and information in Native North America. Little Tree's research is guided by Indigenous ways of knowing, that is, the ways Native people have been creating, transmitting, categorizing, and preserving knowledge since the beginning of time. Relationality is at the core of this approach, informing the structure, core values, and ethics of Indigenous information science. She examines institutions not just as repositories of information, but also as spaces that can maintain and support the continuation of Indigenous ways of knowing. Little Tree holds a Master's of Arts in Curriculum and Institution from the New Mexico State University, a Master of Science in the Information Studies from the University of Texas at Austin, and a PhD in Information Science from the University of Washington. Dr. Little Tree is also a past president of the American Library Association. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Little Tree. To start out, could you tell us what brought you to librarianship? And in particular, your focus on Indigenous information science. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, like a lot of people, librarianship just kind of fell into my life unplanned. I wasn't planning on becoming a librarian or focusing on this at all. Didn't consider it at all as a career option until I saw a call for scholarships for getting a master's degree in library science, and it was focused on serving Native communities at the University of Texas at Austin. It was a IMLS program run by Dr. Lorene Roy, and she had put out this call. I was actually going into teaching. I was a student teacher, hanging out a lot in the school library and talking to the librarian there. And I was one of those people that said, oh, you have to get a master's degree to become a librarian. And, you know, I didn't understand anything about the field at all. So, you know, I asked her a lot of questions about how she got there. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall with No Child Left Behind was getting started when I was student teaching. And I wasn't really sure if being a classroom teacher was right for me. So anyway, she had printed this email from a year earlier about the scholarship program. And she says, you know, you might want to check into this. And I emailed Lorene Roy and she responded within like minutes saying, yes, we still have spaces. Please consider. So I was finishing a master's in curriculum and instruction. Next thing I know, I'm considering a field and a work life as a librarian, which I had never thought about. So it just kind of happened gradually. Even when I was going to library school, I didn't even know, you know, we didn't have any Indigenous information science readings or classes. Lorene was my 
connection to that. And thankfully, the scholarship also had funding for travel, which allowed me to attend the International Indigenous Librarians Forum. It helped me just to kind of get more of a broader perspective on Indigenous information issues in libraries, which I had never thought about at all. And just as I had different projects have kind of fallen into my lap, different things have come across my path that I've just been open to learning about. And, you know, I think being exposed as a as an MLIS student going to these conferences, actually meeting Indigenous librarians, seeing the challenges and the opportunities. And then as I learned more about tribal libraries, which I didn't have growing up, just really opened my eyes to like what was missing. And I think now that I'm in a position to write more and like have a bigger platform about what are some of the issues that's kind of where my focus has shifted to because there's such a need for it. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I know Lorraine made a big impact on me the first time I met her and spent some time with her while she was researching. So she's a great advocate for Native and Indigenous librarians. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the term, how do you define Indigenous systems of knowledge? First of all, I would say don't be ashamed that you don't know (laughs) what this means if you're not familiar with that term. It's actually a term that is very academic. It's kind of a shortcut to talking about values and belief systems. It's something that even I, as a person that has been thinking about these issues, didn't know what that term was. (laughs) There's actually a class that's offered here at the University of Washington Information School called Indigenous Systems of Knowledge. And I thought, oh, I should apply to teach that or try to be the TA when I was a PhD student. And I started to think like, what are Indigenous? I don't even know what this is. I don't know what this means in the LIS context. And so it took me a while to really kind of understand what it means. And even when I tell my dad, or my dad asked me at one point, like, what are you teaching? Or what is it that you're working on? And I told him the title of that class. And he's like, what? What the heck is that? So it's, you know, it's not like informal, you know, it's not like we sit around the table talking about indigenous systems of knowledge at home. It's a very academic term, right? So it's it's kind of a way to describe this this thing. And I teach a whole class on it. So I'll try to be kind of brief. And I I don't want to say that I know everything about it, but to be as brief as I can, I would say Indigenous systems of knowledge are the cultural traditions, the values, the belief systems, those worldviews that, that shape our relationship with our family, with our kinship networks, with our ancestors, with our future generations, with the land, the water, language, history, ceremonial cycles. It's also really about survival and wellness. And not just like in a theoretical sense, but really like practical, like what makes you well. Even if we're living in this modern society, we think about like how do all of these systems work together to meet this goal of of well-being and understanding where there may be gaps in that system because 
maybe you were cut off from certain relationships in the past or your family was or different, you know, generations back, just understanding like the system of knowledge, right? So we're thinking about all of the pieces that work together to form this way of knowing or way of living. And sometimes these different parts of the system need attention and some are stronger than others, just depending on who you are and and what your history is. So it's a really complex issue, and a lot of people have defined it in in different ways. But for me, that's the easiest way to explain it. Hopefully that makes sense. Thank you. It is helpful to everyone to know that it's, it's kind of a journey to understanding what this means and that it's, like you said, a shortcut word to describe something that is very... Well, complex that has very lots of pieces that has lots of parts to it, right? And it's not the same for everybody, too. So it's people, like I said, define it in different ways or understand it in different ways, and and it plays out in different ways for different professions or communities. So I think it's just an understanding that there's these values and beliefs that are influencing the way that we're we're living. So Dr. Littletree, in your writing, and I'm going to quote an article here that you published in the journal Alki, in your writing, you remind us that the story and history of libraries serving Native people is the story and history of American Indians and Alaskan Native people encompassing the issues of colonization, Indian education, self-determination and sovereignty. It is a story of the maintenance of indigenous systems of knowledge after years of subjugation and attempts to make these knowledge systems disappear through removal, assimilation, and cultural genocide. It is so important for us to listen to these stories and recognize the trauma and resilience play a part. Through your work with Washington Tribal Libraries, how have you seen these stories unfold and develop And what are the current and future aspirations of these institutions and communities? I think it is, it's really important not to ignore that history of trauma. And it is a combination of all of these factors, right, that have gotten us to today. So I think having a Pollyanna or like, oh, we're just going to start, you know, from here and not acknowledge any of that history is doing a real disservice. and. As we're talking to people across Washington, just in the different conversations that we've had with some of the librarians, it's not surprising that you know stories about like boarding schools are coming up or about trauma, about being dislocated and disconnected from culture comes up a lot here in these stories of Washington. And it's you know, it's not limited to Washington. I would hear these stories if I went anywhere. And so those stories are still at the surface and, you know, come out as we're talking about education and, you know, the role of libraries and communities. So it's still happening and it's still impacting our communities. We might think it's just in the past or, you know, it's not, we've moved on from that or whatever. I think if you take time to really listen, you'll hear those stories are coming out in different ways. So we have to acknowledge that. And in the work that we've been doing here in Washington, we have a a grant 
this article that you're mentioning is referencing this Mellon grant that we got last year. It's just a short-term, one-year grant to start building relationships with Washington tribal libraries and to do some visiting, get to know some of the librarians and some of the issues that are facing these these libraries. And we had a, a gathering of Washington tribal librarians in March at the Washington Library Association conference. And I struggled with this. I wanted to get us to think about, you know, your question is about like the current and future aspirations of these institutions and communities. But I felt like starting with the present and then jumping to the future was not the right way to start this gathering. And, you know, having a room full of it was native librarians, but also there's a lot of non-native librarians working in tribal communities. It's a mixture of, of people. And some people can launch right into some of these stories of trauma and they feel comfortable sharing that story. There's some librarians that they don't have that in their history because they're not native or they're new to the community. So it was it was this mixture of people in the room but I knew that we needed to acknowledge that before the name of the gathering was, I think, Envisioning the Future of Washington Tribal Libraries. And so I'm also really influenced by an article by Drs. Marisa Duarte and Miranda Bellardi Lewis, where they wrote about imagining, this like technique of imagining the future and thinking about like how do we build systems that invite Indigenous people into the spaces or like they're part of the design of these systems from the beginning. Like how do we get to that space? And the first step in that imagining process is acknowledging the impacts of colonization. And, you know, I I was inspired by that. I felt like that was the right way to start our gathering or at least like the discussion part of when we started to really talk start thinking about the future. And so when we started, I had everyone just write on, we had a bunch of sticky notes and asked them to remember some of that history. You know, remember that colonization impacts our work, especially in tribal communities. These are people working on reservations. There's a lot of history here in Washington with like treaties and, you know, a lot of negotiations that have happened you know, everyone is impacted by this. So what is that history and how has colonization impacted your work? You know, how do we think about our ancestors who have to remain on the land and that continue to do the work, you know, speaking language, their language or participating in different ceremonies or different events? So what do we want to acknowledge about those impacts of colonization in Washington communities, displacement, boarding schools, extraction of knowledge. Because I think whether we want to acknowledge it or not, libraries have played a role in that for the worse, right? I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that history also, that, you know, there was a an effort to assimilate Native people and to bring seeing libraries as a way to assimilate or to like displace some of that knowledge or the supremacy of like the written language over oral language 
And so understanding some of that history and some of the roots of the profession, I think, is important. We didn't get really down into that. And I didn't want to dwell on it in our gathering. We started there. We just wrote for like five or 10 minutes. People wrote things on sticky notes. And then we had a wall of the sticky notes where people, they got up and they put the things on the wall. And there were things like the library was never welcoming to me. Or the one that I wrote was that we didn't grow up going to the library. My parents didn't have any library experiences to pass on to me. So we have to acknowledge that and to kind of understand maybe why there's some of these issues that we're facing now before we can can think about the future. I would love to be able to like really dive into that more, maybe in an article or, or something, but that was just kind of an exercise that, that we did in Washington. And then I really emphasized the fact and reminded people that future thinking is really a natural part of Indigenous ways of knowing, that we're often thinking about our work, you know, and how it impacts future generations. And I think what's really, a lot of times where I really started to think about this was I was invited to write an article about the future of libraries. And I thought about it as from an Indigenous perspective. And I was thinking about how whenever you read about the future of libraries or the future types of work, it's always, you know, five or 10 years into the future. It's not really, you know, it's or it's immediate future. There isn't really that long-term, you never see an Indigenous perspective in those future of libraries conversations. But really, that's really how we, a lot of people think. I think a lot of non-Indigenous librarians are, we get really focused on like that immediate future or five to 10 years down the road, whereas cultivating or acknowledging that, you know, Indigenous librarians often see their work impacting like several generations, hundreds of years into the future, or thinking about seven generations past, how is this work acknowledging your ancestors or incorporating those perspectives? So I think it's just remembering that those are, are different ways of knowing and that in Washington, I think just like in every tribe or every any place where there's Native people, which is everywhere, that people are thinking about the future and thinking about how do we make these services better, not just for my family, but also their families and their kids and their kids. And there were some, you know, we're still going through some of the data or some of the things that people are talking about, but it is, I think, really consistent with what you might think about people wanting language and seeing libraries as a way to support that, but also, you know, thinking about libraries as a way to learn about the world around them. So it's, those things are are both at play. Thank you. And thank you for bringing that perspective to the forefront for a lot of our listeners who haven't considered Indigenous thinking and, and the way a lot of us include ancestors so many generations back and think of the future in terms of those same generations that are to come and appreciate the thinking about that and the learning about that for non-Indigenous librarians and staff is really important and part of this. In that same article, 
you remind us that even with the specialized knowledge and lived experiences you bring to your work, you approach your work with humility, learning as you go about community engagement, research collaborations, and yourself as an individual. When I think about this, I think about how this approach should be all of our starting points as library and museum workers. What would you like to see come to being in libraries and in work of library staff who are not part of Indigenous communities? Yeah, that cultural humility, I think, is a big piece of this. And I think what I've seen is a lot of non-Indigenous library staff, either kind of on two spectrums, right? There's a lot of people that, you know, are becoming aware of Indigenous, Native issues, that they need to do something, right? I see a lot of people operating on on fear, you know, fear of doing something wrong, fear of messing up, you know, saying the wrong thing. And they don't want to be that person, right, that, that makes a mistake or that makes the wrong, I don't know, says the wrong thing. So they don't do anything or it's kind of a paralyzing aspect, right? Or there's people that are just really overly confident, right? That they already know everything. There's really nothing else to learn. And so they're not willing to like be open to different ways of looking at things. So I guess maybe that's the people that are coming to me or the people that are fearful of starting some kind of engagement. I guess what I would tell people or what I would like to see people understand is we're all learning and growing. Like you mentioned from that article and, you know, just my approach is that I don't claim to know everything. You know, I've made mistakes. I've said the wrong thing. You have to apologize sometimes when you're building relationships or you don't know the protocols or I think it's just a human thing, right? We're scared of doing the wrong thing, but I think it kind of gets elevated when you're thinking about working with Native communities, maybe you become hyper aware of it. And I think librarians are and museum workers are, a lot of them are people pleasers, right? You don't want to do the wrong thing, <laughs> so you don't do it at all. But I think that closes you off to just a lot of learning and self-reflection, understanding of you know who you are as a human and what you can contribute So I would like people just to be a lot more open. It is hard to kind of put yourself out there and where do you start? It could be just, you know, showing up to a public gathering. It could be just getting out behind the desk, doing some of your own education, learning about where you, where you are. And even just yesterday, I watched a YouTube video about like some history of treaties in the other part of the state that I didn't know about. You know, I'm not from Washington. I'm from New Mexico. And even then, I don't know all of the history of New Mexico and, you know, all of the traditions and there's different tribes and, you know, there's Pueblos, which are different from Navajos. And coming here to Washington, you know, I'm learning about Coast Salish traditions. And they're not all the same. There's all of the different communities along the Puget Sound. And so just being willing to learn and to not see yourself as trying to become an expert in anything. And I think that sometimes that's hard for librarians or information 
professional people. You know, we want to be seen as being very knowledgeable about something. And, you know, sometimes I tell my students that there's no way for you to know everything about this. It's impossible, you know, <laughs> to become a, an expert. And if you think you're an expert, then by the time you finish taking this class, if you feel like you're an expert in Indigenous systems of knowledge, then you failed this class and you probably should take it again because becoming an expert isn't the goal. It's really just kind of understanding that there's other ways of knowing. And even if you move that dial just a little bit, I think that's good. And that kind of opens you up to other ways of, of thinking about how do we work with different communities but I don't know why, <laughs> I don't know, library staff, people get so entrenched in some of the values or, you know, that it, it's always been done this way or libraries should be open for all of the knowledge that's out there, which sounds okay until you start, you know, getting down into the trenches of like, okay, what, what does that mean for this type of knowledge or these types of communities that have knowledge that they just want to share with their own community. And I've seen people challenge that, that are coming from a very traditional library background and not realize that those are some values that may not be held by other communities. And so seeing yourself as like having skills that are valuable, but not that they may not work in every situation. Sometimes you have to throw that out the door or start anew, or just think about other ways of serving communities that might be different than your own. And I think it's, you know, that same advice when just community engagement advice, if you wanted to serve a community that's different from your own, get out from behind the desk, you know, show up at events, volunteer. There's lots of different ways to get involved and I think it just might take a little digging or a little asking questions or building relationships with people if you can. And if you're really dedicated or if you're really wanting to, to engage, there are avenues. And I think people are willing to let people in and build those bridges. So I think people have to get over that fear. That fear of messing up is big, right? <laughs> <laughs> Even I have yeah. it. I have it all yeah. the time. Yeah. It reminds me of, you may have seen, there's a document that's gone around like the aspects of white supremacy culture and that idea of perfectionism that, you know, there's something wrong with you if you mess up. And I agree with you. It's really important for us to let go of that and bring that humility back in, being able to apologize if you mess up and seeing it as a learning experience. And Yeah. Yeah. It is. And it's part of that relationship building too, right? Like every relationship is there's a point where you have to apologize or you've done something wrong and, you know, you have to think about, well, how do I adjust and how do I do better next time? I think it's just part of being human. And I think it's that perfectionism and that expectation that, you know, we're going to do this right. And I think for myself too, being that I'll have in my bio or, you know, people come to me thinking that I know everything about indigenous systems of knowledge and I don't, <laughs> you know, I'm interested in it and I, I can see it playing out in different ways, but I, I don't know about every single indigenous community. And, you know, I, I have a really, you know, my own lived experiences as a native person living in different communities and coming from different backgrounds and even, you know, being from different tribes, 
My dad is Navajo. My mom is Shoshone, Eastern Shoshone from Wyoming. And now I live in Washington, which is, you know, Coast Salish territory. So it's, and then, you know, having lived in Southern Arizona and lived on the East Coast. And so, you know, just taking those different opportunities to learn and to be open and to try to build build those relationships. Is, and I guess the other part of it that's sometimes hard too is there's a lot of librarians that are real introverts too, right? So it's, that's another piece of it that sometimes it's hard to like, oh, how do I do this? Or how do I engage with the community when I don't even, you know, want to talk to people <laughs> or get out of my my little shell? So I understand that too. So it's, I think it's all part of like the work and sometimes you have to get over that to start engaging. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That lifelong learning and being yes. open. <laughs> Speaking of learning, both Oregon and Washington have passed legislation to help ensure that students learn tribal history. How, if at all, do you think these efforts share Indigenous ways of knowing? And what role do you see for libraries in supporting that work? Yeah, I think we're really lucky to be living in these states and have, have this. I wish we would have had this in New Mexico or across the country, actually, because I, I think it's a long time in coming. And again, I'll, I'll admit my own ignorance and even Native people don't know a lot of this history. And so I think that it's being supported in, at a state level right now is so important. And like I said, growing up in New Mexico, like in, I'm going to date myself, you know, going to school in the eighties and, you know, nineties, there was no mention of native history unless you took special native Navajo history class. And even then that class was taught by like the football coach, you know, was kind of like the throwaway class. So to have it, embedded and or supposedly embedded into schools. I know there's a lot of growth that needs to happen and it's not overnight and um, there's a lot of training that has to happen, even teachers. I think it's been on the books here in Washington. I don't know, it's maybe 10 years or something or, but it's, I think there, there's still a lot of growth that needs to happen. And, you know, you have to remember that the teachers that are learning about this also didn't have this growing up. And so there's a lot of like re-education that has to happen at lots of different levels. So they're having to learn this history before they can even teach it. And they have to be open to learning this history. And then, you know, you have to have all of the resources and the people behind the scenes to be able to teach them this. And I think there's a lot of learning, like you said, that has to happen on lots of different levels. So it's going to take some time I think librarians can also be a part of this. You know, a lot of librarians, as we know, the profession is is very white. You know, we're all coming from this education system that has ignored Native history or has kind of glossed over it or has kind of had a romanticized history. Or there may be some people that are coming to librarianship with a really excellent history, which is great. But I think for the majority of us, a lot of people don't have that, right? So I think there's there's just going to be a lot of that relearning. And I know these initiatives are really about tribal history. Here in Washington, there's a 
big focus on tribal sovereignty. And I know that people are really becoming aware of sovereignty issues. I know Mandy Harris, who's one of our PhD students who's worked in Idaho, has done some, I think she calls it Native Idaho, like webinars for librarians aimed at public librarians or school librarians in Idaho to kind of learn about the different tribes in Idaho, some of that history. So I think what librarians can do is do your part in learning about sovereignty, learning about some of that history that surrounds you, the land that we're on, you know, land acknowledgements is becoming a thing, right? So I think that's a good step, but how do you take it beyond land acknowledgements and, you know, just either reciting one that's been written for you or hearing it and just kind of, you're not really paying attention to it or not really listening to the words that they're saying, or if it's been written for you, do you really believe it? (laughs) Or do you, have you exercised what you're acknowledging? What I would love to see is people taking the time to write their own land acknowledgements that don't come from, that aren't prescribed. And you don't have to recite it at all, or, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you put on your resume or something or your email signature, but just taking some time to being aware of of some of that, where you are, learning about if there's a history of treaties in your area or reservations, you know, those systems and those rights and people think that, why don't Indians get to live on reservations or why is this a special right that they have? (laughs) You know, people don't understand, you know, that Native nations really gave up a lot for you to live where you are for the most part. Almost every single person in this country is living on land that was given up or that was fought over that was once part of Native nations' history or where they lived, where they where they hunted, or there's all this history. So it isn't just they're given these special reservations. That These are places that they ended up with having. And so the land, what are they called? Those universities that are state, I forget those land-grant universities, all of this, you know, all of the water rights. These are all like things that are playing out today that we all take advantage of these different access to land, to water, to our life in this country. (laughs) And so I think it's up to us to really educate ourselves about how did we get here from different perspectives. And so I think librarians could support that by maybe going through that same training program, perhaps, or, you know, taking advantage of what's online that's been offered in these Oregon and Washington. I think Montana has a similar legislation. If someone came to your desk and asked about tribal history, would you feel comfortable answering those questions? And do you know where to go to find that information? Do you feel like it's accurate or even, you know, right now, at this moment, they're recruiting for a person at the Library of Congress to work on, like, subject headings, right? And so, for Native communities and making sure it's more representative. So, understanding that some of those, the systems that we use, too, even have 
issues, there's problems with within them. And like, what is your role as a librarian to understand those problems within the systems that we use and that we're that we offer to patrons or we offer to students? And then understanding, well, how do you deal with that if there's trauma involved or if you know, if you had a native, a young native person doing history on their own community, how do you feel comfortable helping them develop those those information literacy skills, but also taking care of themselves too, to making sure that that they're okay as they go through this this research. So I think a lot of times librarians or what I've seen is people are like, oh, I'm so shocked or this history is so terrible and they I feel ashamed of this history or I don't want to learn about it or, you know, enough is enough and let's move on. I think most people are at a place where they get angry or upset learning about some of this history and they might just stop there. But I would encourage people to think beyond that and think beyond your own your own shock and dismay and think about like, well, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> Now that we know this history, how do we improve the systems so that people can find the information that they need if they want to do more digging? How do you prepare yourself for problems with what's out there? I mean, there's a lot of old stuff that uses stereotypical language. People might expect to find a lot of information about a certain tribal history and there's nothing written how would you help that patron? Do you have any power to get different resources or ways to contextualize it? So I think we can't be passive in all of this. I think there's a lot of power that librarians have in understanding what's available, understanding the levels of literacy that people have and trying to find the information and then also understanding some of that trauma that comes from doing some of that research. And, you know, I'm always inspired by our neighbors in Canada. If you talk to people in Canada, Native people, First Nations people, they'll scoff and, oh, you know, there's a lot of problems up there too. But I think they've done a lot in terms of building, even at UBC, there's that National Truth and Reconciliation archive on campus. It's a library and they've built it with real intention of helping people to like find boarding school records. And I think there's rooms for elders. There's like a a garden in that space. So it's not just about the information. It's kind of taking care of the person and having people staffed in there that really understand that history and that can help people navigate some of those systems so that they can find information and you know, an understanding that it can be traumatic for people to remember what happened to their ancestors. You know, you think it's traumatic for you to learn about it, but, you know, think about, you know, if it's part of your family history or seeing family names written in boarding school records or whatever. So I think it's a huge win for our states that we have this. And I would hope that librarians can see some ways that they can contribute to this work and help others to understand it, help themselves, help Native communities to build these really robust systems. Thank you for bringing up all of that, and especially boarding schools. And 
the effects that are still happening in our communities and families due to boarding schools. I was part of the team at the Herd Museum in Phoenix that put together a boarding school exhibition that exhibit is still open. And putting that together and being on that, the research team for that was very difficult at times. And putting together the exhibit itself was difficult, but it was also rewarding in that so many people are learning so much from going through the exhibit and other exhibits like that around the country. If we are truly going to commit to promoting and maintaining Indigenous systems of knowledge and supporting Indigenous data sovereignty, we need more Indigenous librarians and library staff working in our libraries. Are there ways that we can make the library profession more accessible and attractive to those in Indigenous communities? I know that it's always a struggle in any community, but for Indigenous communities, I know just from personal experience, it's hard and a lot of us just end up here. <laughs> but can you give us some ideas maybe for that? Yeah, it is a huge issue. A lot of us end up in this field because we saw a problem or we saw a gap in the profession and we want to like try to try to do something about it or try to make a difference in that way. And I see a lot of people, and what I would love to see is Native people entering the field because they see the beauty of the library and they want to be part of that movement. You know, just like I see a lot of white librarians entering the field, like, oh, you know, I loved my library growing up and I want to become part of this. You see that sometimes in Native communities, but not not as much. I think it's going to take a lot of time to make the profession more attractive and accessible to Indigenous communities. I think a lot of Native people see, especially public libraries, as very white spaces with primarily white materials. And it's not really a place where the first place they think of going for information. So, and I say that just even, I'm going to call out my husband, because I just said this to him, he was looking for information on something. And I said, why don't you go to the library? And he's like, I don't need white information or, you know, something like that. <laughs> and he knows what, I, you know, we've been together all this time and he knows what I do. And, but he's not a library user. <laughs> I haven't even converted my, my own husband into like seeing the library as a, a welcoming space. And so I think what I would love to see this is kind of my my dream and I, I know it's going to take time but I would I would love to see the the flourishing of tribal libraries in our country or you know these even libraries in, in urban spaces that are really open for for native communities I think it's going to be probably the the easier way than like trying to like change our current, public library systems i think there's it's, that's going to take a long time i think where where we can maybe make a bigger difference quicker is is really focusing on the tribal libraries and when i say flourishing i don't mean flourishing by white you know western standards of what does a flourishing library look like 
if you're hearing that and you have a certain thing in mind based on your own experiences with a very Western library, then that's not what I'm talking about. I think it needs to be a space that's really native run, a truly native space where people understand those cultural issues, history, values, that they're able to incorporate, you know, native collections, native ways of thinking about knowledge and information and understand not only that, but also like how to take advantage of what the library profession has to offer, like these cataloging systems, which can be amazing and that we can use technology to digitize resources or that we have these connections, you know, around the country or in our region to other libraries and professionals. But what I would love to see is that the best of those types of services, but within a Native perspective. And even better is if the Native people were, were creating those cataloging systems and they were creating the databases and they were creating the digitizing resources. I mean, I think we we just have to take over all of these systems so that people feel like their knowledge or their families feel cared for, where they're the majority, right? Or that it's built on those ways of knowing. And not to say that allies or people that want to work in these spaces can't, but I think if we're always starting from that Western perspective or that we're trying to get up to this, comparing ourselves to some other standard, then we're always going to be behind or we're always going to be seen as deficit. Or, But if we start from our own ways of knowing and kind of bring in what helps, bring in what makes sense for our own communities, then I think we can see it maybe turning around and uh, Native people If you can imagine growing up in a a space like that, where you see that as an option for the work that you want to do in your community, and you're like, oh, I want to be the tribal librarian when I grow up. And you knew that there was an education program that was helped you to learn all of that. And that was based on Native ways of knowing. That's the other part of this too, right, is that we have to have more Native faculty and We have to have curriculum that's in LIS or MLIS programs or training programs that honor that or that understand some of these issues. So that's what I think is kind of, it's kind of a dream. I would love to see that happening in in public library spaces. And, but I honestly, I think it's, it's far off. I do see a lot of people starting to come around and, and seeing that, you know, that they have to make some adjustments. But I think people maybe just being aware of, of some of the issues, maybe it will make it more attractive to Native communities. But it's, I think it's going to take some time. Yeah, I love that. And I would love to see, I'm I'm sort of envisioning a lot of reservations that don't have tribal libraries, but you have a rec center, you know, let's get some of that sort of partnering and, and get some of those things merged would be wonderful. Definitely. We got to take over. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking now for Native and Indigenous librarians who are in the profession, thinking about support systems that can help in the work that you know people are currently doing 
And that brings me to the American Indian Library Association. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience with the American Indian Library Association. And then beyond that, like what role do you see professional associations playing in the future of libraries? And what should we all be asking of our local, state, and national associations so that they better support EDI and anti-racism work? Yeah, so so I was president of the American Indian Library Association. I can't remember what year, like 2009, 10, something like that. It's been, it's been a little while. And it was a real honor to be part of that and to be asked to, to serve in that way. And I learned a ton. And, you know, my first reaction when they asked me to, to be on the ballot was like, me? Like, why me? <laughs> like, so I think being open to those opportunities and like seeing people that have potential for stepping into these roles, I think is really important for not only Native librarians, but also other people who are in other associations, you know, keeping your eye out for people that may be, may be interested in, in serving in, in these capacities. It's a lot of hard work, though, I'll say. <laughs> it's a lot of work. For me, it was really an important period of growth and networking. I felt really honored to be, to work with some of the previous leaders and to be invited to different conversations. And, you know, it was a chance to really put together a, a platform or, you know, put put out some ideas that I thought at the time was was really important. It's not enough time. <laughs> they, they always say, you know, by the time you're done with your leadership experience, then you've learned so much and like, oh, I could have done it better or you could have done this or that. And, and then it's over. And I think what what I've seen with the American Indian, or maybe it's just myself and like the people that were really involved at that time is it's a ton of work with the American Indian Library Association. It's under the American Library Association. So kind of an umbrella organization. So, you know, we had to deal a lot with ALA and some of the politics and bureaucracy within ALA. So it's understanding that there's a lot of people that get really pulled into it and there's always issues that are happening at that level. So what I've seen is people getting burnt out at those leadership levels. And I know for myself, when I took a step back from it, I felt like I'd done some real good, but it was really nice to step away <laughs> and to see like other people taking up some of those roles so I don't really know, like, what is the solution for keeping people involved? There's there's always problems of involvement. It's all volunteer run. It's on people's own time. So people have to have the capacity to serve in that way. So what are other ways that you can open up those spaces for people to be able to contribute so that they're not doing it on top of all the other stuff that they're doing? Are there incentives to stay involved. And that's really hard at that level if it's something that you're just kind of adding on to everything else. I don't know how to ask unless there's some way to have these associations to advocate for employers to maybe give a lot more support for people to be involved. You know, travel, it's really expensive. It's committee work takes time. Having that count as part of 
part of the work that you're already doing. So I think there's a lot of systems that still need to be worked out to make it, you know, as rewarding and as impactful as it it could be. But it is really worth it, I think, to get involved and to learn as much. And now I'm on the IFLA Indigenous Matters section, which is International Federation of Library Associations. And if we thought ALA was bureaucratic and or your state library, look at IFLA. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, my mind is blown looking at like all of the different levels and different sections and like, oh my God, I don't, I have to learn all of this stuff. And then thinking about, you know, I'm not just focused on, you know, my own indigenous American Indian, but now we're thinking globally about indigenous information issues and, you know, what do I know about I'm more familiar maybe with New Zealand and Australia, but there's indigenous people everywhere around the globe. So there's that cultural humility coming in again, like, okay, how do we, how do we engage? And, and it's, it's exciting. There's a lot of issues that need to be addressed, but I think getting involved at these different levels and being open to these different types of committees and not being afraid to speak up on these committees and saying that we do need more people working on these and and that you don't have to be Indigenous or Native American or American Indian to be a member of AILA, the American Indian Library Association. Anyone can join if you're interested. And joining is just part of it. Like I said, there's lots of opportunities for volunteers and different committees and being able to step in and help maybe if you have the capacity that you're helping people to not burn out <laughs> so much and kind of spreading the work because there's a, enough work for way too many people that we have. They have the, the staffing to do. I hear you saying two things that one, like what you just said, that, that it's an opportunity for learning and growth and real support that white colleagues can give by joining an organization like the American Indian Library Association, helping support if you have, especially if you have support from your employer so that you can help make sure other folks don't get burnt out. Then the other piece I hear comes part of like what we should be asking of our organizations, local, state, and national, is to advocate with employers to support Indigenous librarians and BIPOC librarians that they can do some of this important work that really helps us shape our profession, right? And have some of that count as work time. Like two different things to help folks from not being burnt out. (laughs) Yeah, burnout is a big thing. (laughs) Well, gosh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Littletree. This has been a great conversation. It has. I so appreciate listening to you and be inspired to continue this work from the things that you've shared with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's good to talk about some of these issues. Sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, I get overwhelmed by everything that's going on. And so it's nice to also be reminded of what I'm doing and (laughs) why I'm doing it, because it can get overwhelming sometimes but it's important. So thank you for having me. 
After this inspiring conversation, we have a call to action for our listeners. How can you incorporate into your daily life the practice of cultural humility and the ideas that we are all learning, making mistakes, and growing? This project was made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services through the Library Services and Technology Act, administered by the State Library of Oregon. Este proyecto ha sido posible en parte por el Instituto de Servicios de Museos y Bibliotecas a través de la Ley de Servicios de Biblioteca y Tecnología, LSTA, administrada por la Biblioteca del Estado de Oregon. We would like to take time to acknowledge historical injustices. We recognize Oregon was established as a white sanctuary state with the intent to exclude African American and Black people on ancestral lands stolen from dispossessed indigenous peoples. We recognize and honor the members of federally recognized tribes and unrecognized tribes of Oregon. We honor Native American ancestors, past, present, and future, whose land we still occupy. This acknowledgement aims to deconstruct false histories, correct the historical record, and disrupt genocidal practices by refocusing attention to the original people of the land we inhabit, the slave trade and forced labor that built this country and to the oppressive social systems interwoven into the fabric of our national and regional heritage. We ask that you take a moment to acknowledge and reflect as well.